you could take that little frag a little fragment from the seat of a subway, put it in a PCR technology, and blow it up and tell somebody you've got, you know, whatever the disease could be. And that's what they were doing. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, anyone who lived through the COVID-19 pandemic recalls these campy, somewhat comical, even absurd videos of nurses and healthcare workers dancing around in sort of choreographed uh, ways uh, uh, on, on videos that were published and broadcast all over social media and the like. But that sort of belies a deeper story that we're going to hear about today. Our guest is an American author named uh, Ken McCarthy, who's written two really astonishing books about the COVID-19 pandemic, the truth about it. The first book that he wrote is called Fauci's First Fraud, and the most recent book is called What the Nurses Saw. Welcome to the program today, Ken. It's great to have you on Gray Matter as our special guest today. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we uh, we dive in and uh, introduce our guest properly and talk about uh, these incredible books, uh, as we always do, we're going to go to our framing aphorisms. Um, the first one is from Dr. Fauci, who said a lot of things publicly, as you know, but uh, these two are particularly heinous. Uh, one is uh, he, he was quoted as saying, it is an indescribable experience knowing that what you were doing will have an impact on the lives of millions of people. I would have added the lives and deaths of millions of people if I were <laughs> rewriting that one. The second yeah. one, also from Dr. Fauci, who uh, calls himself the science, uh, nay, the truth. He said, uh, I think you can trust me with a track record of telling the truth. Had a hard time keeping a straight face when I went through that one, folks. Uh, next, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who wrote another incredible book, which our guest today uh, was quoted many times in, called The Real Anthony Fauci. He said this, the first sign of tyranny is government's complicity in privatizing the commons for private gain. Well, who do we have on the show today? Well, Ken McCarthy, a very interesting background. And we're going to get him to talk about this, sort of his origin story, but he's a seminal pioneer, both of the commercial internet and citizen journalism. Time magazine credits him with being the first person to recognize and articulate the importance of the click-through rate as a key metric for making the internet commercially viable. Obviously revolutionary. Uh, 25 years ago, or, or a bit more than that, in 1997, he launched the first news blog ever, a detailed account of an election fraud investigation in San Francisco as it unfolded, kind of a harbinger of things to come. Uh, he was also a pioneer, a pioneer of, and in some cases directly initiated, the use of many now common internet publishing activities, including email marketing, banner advertising, uh, A-B split testing, email autoresponders, blogging, push-button audio content, now known as podcasting, uh, which we're doing right now, online video, and mobile marketing. He was introduced to the practice of science as an undergraduate at Princeton University, where he studied with Julian Jaynes in psychology and Bart Hobel in neuroscience. He's currently involved in advancing innovations in neurology and rehabilitative medicine through his support of fundamental research. Uh, 
But of course, like a lot of people, his life changed radically as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in February 1st, 2020, he predicted in writing on two Twitter posts, one, that the news out of China was suspect, and two, it gave the appearance of being a news media campaign for flu shots, and three, it could possibly lead to the rapid development of dangerous coronavirus vaccines with more focus on speed than science. Certainly had all those three uh, right on the mark. I would say bullseye uh, all three times. And then in August of 2020, Ken released the documentary Fauci's First Fraud, which was cited 28 times, as I said, in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci, which if you haven't read it yet, is a must read. So he's the author of this new book called What the Nurses Saw about the systemic medical murders that took place and continue to take place under the cover of COVID hysteria. So Ken, I want to start with uh, uh, something you posted on Twitter back in October of 2020. And you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a picture of a of an airplane, uh, oh, yeah. and a banner says "Terror War Against the Population." The front of the plane says "Farmer Fraud," the rear says uh, "Gates Foundation Grants to News Media," and then there's bombs being dropped, and it says yeah. "Fauci and Friends." And uh, you say here that the graphic tells the entire COVID story in a glance, and it really is no more complicated than this. You want to talk? You want to maybe start there? Yeah, you know. For whatever reason, you know, February 1st, 2020, I was already kind of realizing the whole thing was a scam. And and I don't know, I don't really know why. Maybe, you know, I had a certain I have a certain background and a certain way of looking at the world, and it just all aligned so that I was able to, you know, perceive that. Uh, different people perceive different things at different times. Uh, by the way, I'd love if the public would petition Twitter or X. I'm still banned from Twitter. My my account's frozen. Yeah, it's Incredible. it's live, but I cannot access my account. I cannot post to my account. They will not respond to my petitions. <laughs> they don't even acknowledge receipt of my. It's crazy. But anyway, that's that's a side issue. But but um, and then a lot of people once they figured it out were just you know horrified that they had been fooled. And I said, listen, we are the equivalent of Vietnamese peasants in the rice paddies. We've got our water buffalo. We're putting in the plants. We're taking care of our families and our communities. And suddenly these things are flying overhead and they're dropping bombs on us. We don't know where they came from. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what their motivation is. But what we do know is there must be, if there's a plane, there must be an airport. Somebody must have built that airport. Somebody must have assembled those planes. Somebody must be fueling those planes and loading them with bombs. Somebody must be planning out the daily bombing missions and putting the pilots in their seats and sending them off. So even though we didn't know at the time exactly what was going on, you just knew by the effects of what uh, had to be going on in the background, both chronologically and you know physically. Um, and so I was trying to explain to people, this was a terror bombing campaign. They weren't using real bombs, physical bombs. They were using you know disinformation or misinformation or black propaganda bombs, but that's what it was. It was a, it was a, it was a military level operation um, uh, of terror using information. And, and it was the equivalent of dropping bombs on, on people. And, and most people didn't know what hit them just as the same. I'm sure some of the, these, these, these victims of, of the Vietnam war, they didn't know what hit them either. So that's, that's my, that was the reason for that graphic to try to yeah. put it into one picture. You know, it's, it's fascinating, uh, as we've had a number of guests on the show and, and a number of books that I've read, it's interesting that people like yourself who have backgrounds in things like psychology and neuroscience 
seem to have had kind of a sixth sense about this. Um, and of course, the, the whole COVID-19 pandemic has been described uh, in, in many situations as a quote-unquote psyop. And so perhaps that's a natural thing that you were able to suspect this early on. I had the same sensation. In fact, I was, uh, I was uh, the target of a cancel culture experience here in Canada uh, because I published something about our federal government that they were going to use um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to invoke emergency uh, the Emergencies Act, which resulted in the and the really the military quelling of the Freedom Convoy in 2022. But I was about uh, two years early to the party right. on that, and so it's interesting. I I share that it's interesting that um, that that some people were able to to see more clearly what this is, this is about. And I'd I'd like to read a book about why that is, but it, but I I have noticed that people like yourselves who have have a background in psychology seem to really detected this early on. I also have a background in marketing and I am a student of the history of propaganda, uh, like a serious student. And, and you're an attorney, correct? Yes. Yeah. So you could predict the legal track. So I think it is simply a matter of what's your professional background? What have you immersed your mind in over the years? And what are you just naturally able to see that that an, a person from another profession or a different training just wouldn't see initially? Maybe yeah. it's that simple. Yeah. Um, another really interesting graphic that uh, you posted is this one uh, where you probably know what this is. This is a picture of uh, four. Uh, it, it's a, there's a hypnotist, a mesmerist, uh, who's got uh, 2020, 2021, 22, 2023. And in 2020, it's COVID-19. 2021, it's the vaccine. 2022, it's Ukraine, which, of course, everybody and their dog has forgotten all about. And 2023, of course, now we have the climate scare. Right. And uh, and you write, you say there are people who will get the meaning of this cartoon instantly, and there are others who will forever be scratching their heads over. <laughs> so, so, but you, but yeah, you're making a really important point here, and that is that um, you know you we've got to we've got to see behind the lies. We've got to look for the truth, and and that's really what your two books are about, especially beginning with Fauci's first fraud. What was the impetus for you to write that book? Well, I'm, I'm, I grew up in the 1980s in New York City, which was sort of, uh, you know, seems to be ground zero often. It, it was ground zero for the for the uh, AIDS. Um, right. Yes. I am, I'm trying to think of the right word. I'm, I don't want to say epidemic because it's not medically true. Uh, I don't want to undermine the, the seriousness of what actually was happening by calling yeah. it a scam, but we'll call it a scam. Okay. Um, and just, to, just so people either remember who weren't alive yet. And there were a lot of people probably watching the show weren't even alive back then. Uh, it got so crazy that Oprah Winfrey, who had a viewership at the time of 40 million people, got on her program and said, one out of five of you in this audience will be dead from AIDS by 1990. Yeah, I remember right? and that. And that, that's, that's, that's a form of terror bombing as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... I was terrorized. I mean, we were everybody, every you know, regardless of your background, because they were they were presenting it like anybody could get it. It was you know, if if you had sex with somebody who 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 had sex with somebody, you're going to get AIDS, you know. And right. then they, you know, and of course we've all had sex, hopefully, um, and, and and then you don't know exactly everybody that the person you've had. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like so your mind is like doing the calculation for you, which is which is the dream of a propagandist is, is, is get the, get the wheels spinning and let you spin right. your own. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, I was afraid like everybody else, but then bit by bit, 
I was learning bits and pieces. I did read the Peter Duisberg called the, I think he was called, he called it the invention of the AIDS virus. I read that right. wow, way back when it came yeah. out. Um, I was aware of the work of Celia Farber uh, way back. Uh, Gary Knoll is another one. And so I was getting these little things in the back of my head in the 80s and the 90s that this was a scam. But then it faded away and then I forgot about it. Now Fauci appears and uh, I'm like, who is this guy? And then we hear that, oh, well, his, his claim to fame is that he solved the AIDS crisis. And I'm like, wait a minute. So I went on a deep, 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 deep dive, piles and piles and piles of stuff. And then I, re and then I really got into the AIDS uh, fraud, we'll call it. Yeah, uh, at a very granular level. And I realized this thing was a fraud. Were there, is there a thing, is there a syndrome whereby people's immune systems collapse? Absolutely. What's the cause? It ain't a virus. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole, you know, it's a bunch of other stuff that, that people, that people do. You know, some people um, abuse their bodies. You know, for instance, the, the, the AIDS, the classic AIDS symptoms were known a hundred years ago and they first appeared in intravenous drug users. Okay. Right. Why? Because they were just slamming their immune system several times a day, every day of the week. Uh, the next group uh, that, that developed these kind of problems at a young age, because you sometimes see these problems at an old age or somebody that's been sick for a long, long time. It, it is shocking to see it in a young person. The other group, there, there was, um, you know, a, a, a blossoming, a flowering or whatever of, of, um, of gay rights and gay, you know, gay self-expression. And uh, that happened in the 70s. And, you know, people that don't know, it used to be illegal. It was a jailable offense to be a homosexual. People have gone to prison for it. So that, that cruelty and that senselessness was removed. And like there were many rights movements, women's rights, uh, black rights, gay rights, people, you know, there's like, let's assert ourselves. And, and, you know, as young men do, <laughs> apparently... Uh, well, not apparently. We know this because we have the documents. And, and, and actually, I can't think of the guy's name offhand, but he's a famous, uh, he was a playwright, but he was also a, a, a gay activist. Very, very loud. Very. He wrote a book in the 70s uh, before the AIDS crisis hit where he was documenting what the lifestyle was of a small segment of the male homosexual community, mostly young men. And, you know, young men are crazy. And, 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 you know, there's a beautiful balance in, in heterosexuality. You have, man, you have man here, you have women here. Men are just out of their minds. Women are a little more generally, in general, these are generalities, are a little more like, wait a minute, hang on, let's slow it down a little bit. What yeah. happens when you get men and young men and young men? I mean, it just, there's no limit. There's no consequences. Yeah, I mean, a young woman, the consequences you know, of you know, it are obviously higher, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and whereas women give some thought to their reputation and, you know, I can't be seen as, the, you know, it's not an issue for us. You know, we're, we just don't have any sense when we're younger. Um, so, so you had that with the, with the immersion of the gay rights movement. And then you had the explosion of, um, you know, gay bathhouses and gay cinema and gay this and gay that. And um, some of a small percent and, and every population has it, heterosexuals, homosexuals, white, black, Chinese, uh, whatever, every Every sub, every group of human beings you can think of has a small percentage of people that overdo it. And there was a small percentage of people in the male homosexual community that really overdid it out every night, multiple different kinds of drugs, you know, as many sex partners as they could possibly have, not even knowing who was who. Um, and this caused a lot of social, uh, sexually transmitted disease. 
Right. And so it was not uncommon for the people, again, I want to stress, stress a small percentage of a larger group who would catch a sexually transmitted disease three, four, five, six, seven times a year, which would all be treated with penicillin, which of course we know, and, and other antibiotics, a wonderful invention, but something that you don't want to take a lot of if you don't have to. Right. It became so crazy among this tiny subgroup that they were taking these kind of drugs prophylactically. So you, you know, you do a bump of speed, you smoke a joint, and then you take some, some antibiotics, and then you go to the club. And then you would almost invariably sniff, sniff something called um, poppers. Mm. Um, what is popper? It's amyl nitrate. It's, it's, some, it's a thing that literally you break. Let's say somebody's having a heart attack and you want to open all their blood vessels quickly. You break it, you, they smell it, and, and hopefully you've saved their life. Well, it also gives a rush. It also, and I'm, I don't want to get graphic here, but it makes certain sexual acts a little bit easier to do. Okay. So, so, so this was something that you saw used heavily in that particular community among that subgroup. So much, so much so that if you went to a bar, and this is all in the film, they'd have the d different drinks, but they would also have the different brands of poppers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Guys would come to the club with poppers and a necklace around their neck. And while they were dancing, they'd break one off, snort it, and keep dancing. We actually had that in the film, like actual documentary footage of that. And this was a money machine. This was half a cent worth of chemicals being sold for five bucks. And there was actually a guy in Indianapolis who made hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, literally. And they funded all, they were this chief funder of all the gay rights magazines at the time, the advocate, right? So you had, and okay, now why, why does it matter? This drug is a known carcinogen. It's not something that you want to take a lot. If you're, if you're about to die of a heart attack, all right, take a shot of it. Don't take 10 shots of it every night, six nights a week for years on end. So where, where did the cancers appear in the original uh, cohort of, of so-called AIDS victims? Um, in the nasal passages and the lungs. Mm. Are we shocked? You know, the it was a, a fungal disease in the lungs, and then it, and then a kind of a um, a skin cancer, which normally appears on the outside of your skin. Mediterranean men who are in their eighties get it. Well, suddenly young men were getting it in the interior of their nose and in their throat, and they called it a brand new disease called caused by uh, a virus. Now they knew damn well that these drugs were being used massively, and they knew exactly what the drugs did. Uh, clinically and how dangerous they were and what they did with the science they had all the information about how dangerous this substance was and the fact that this was a, a prevalent uh, heavily used drug in in a, among a certain group of people and they kept a, a, a wall between them mm. and you, we have quotes of fauci constantly saying young otherwise healthy men well, they weren't, they weren't strictly young. The, the original cohort were in their mid-30s, so they'd had a good 15 years to wreck their health by, by severe drug abuse mm -hmm. um, and, and other activities, right? And they definitely weren't healthy. You can't yeah. call So they, they, were, they were presenting to the world that this healthy young man, he's just walking down the street, an AIDS you know, virus falls on his head, and suddenly he's got this dread disease. That's not how people got AIDS. Then the next round of people that got that quote got AIDS were the people that were given AZT. And AZT was a drug banned for human use, banned for human use, because it was a carcinogen and a mutagen. It was known to be toxic and dangerous. And by some kind of legal 
because the lawyers are involved in all this, Leisure Domain, it got turned into an acceptable drug to fight the scourge of AIDS. It was an emergency. We needed a cure. There was no cure. Somehow, by some mumbo-jumbo scientific fraud, AZT was demonstrated to help with AIDS. Well, there's one. Um, he's passed away now, very recently, actually, John Lorston. And Harvard-trained statistician, gay activist for 40 years, one of the first uh, so-called AIDS dissidents, and he estimates that at least a minimum of 300,000 gay men alone were killed by AZT. Oh, and of course, yeah, I mean, a big number. And, and he's a sober-minded guy, and he devoted his life to this study, and not homophobic, <laughs> obviously. And, yeah. and, and he, his, his motivation, he was very, very upfront about it, his motivation was to save the lives of gay men. Now, his research also pointed out that this AZT, which was being exported to Africa, was being, you know, in, in Africa's bizarre situation. Like if you if you if we have a fever and we lose some weight, maybe have diarrhea for a while and get over it, you know, no problem. If you have that in Africa, you might be called an AIDS patient and you might be given AZT. Uh, and, and they were giving AZT to pregnant women, uh, giving AZT to brand uh, newborn babies. Uh, they were doing that in this country. They, interestingly enough, they tend to focus on the poor and the downtrodden, African-American people in, in low-income areas who had tr you know, trouble accessing health care because you know, we have a, a, a commercial health care system, which is a good idea, and, and it, it could be humanized a bit. Um, but in any event, we have that. And if you can't pay, you don't get any kind of service at all. So if you want service, you have to go to the state. And the state said, oh, you're a pregnant woman. you got to take an AIDS test. Oh, you're, you're, you've got AIDS. Well, the, the, the test proved no such thing. And the inventor of um, the, the, the for, core technology of the test, who, uh, not, not the AIDS test, but the technology that was bastardized to prove people had AIDS, uh, Carrie Mullis, happened to win the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for this very invention, uh, PCR. He yeah. said this, this technology should never ever be used for diagnosis it has nothing to right. do with medicine it is an it is a genetic it is a genetic material amplification um technique so so you want to do like gene research right so you got a little bit of genetic material well if you grow it the old-fashioned way you know you may be old and gray before you have enough material to actually work with pcr allows you to take the tiniest fragment of genetic material and blast it so that you have a lot of it and so when you when you give somebody when, when you give somebody a pcr test uh, the, 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 you can set the number of cycles, how many times you do the duplication process, right? right? They were setting the, 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 the uh, duplication process like at, at just insane rates. You could probably, and this was actually d demonstrated before um, the AIDS, or no, before the COVID thing. Um, somebody went through uh, the, the New York City subway system with swabs and just swabbed it all over the place, right? And then they tested they literally found every disease known to mankind on the seats of the subway system. Now, you would think that therefore everybody would just die, right? right. No, because we have, we have a thing called an immune system, right? But you could take that little fragment, a little fragment from the seat of a subway, put it in a PCR technology and blow it up and tell somebody you've got, you know, whatever the disease could be. And that's what they were doing. So yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I've gone on, I've gone on and on, but... Um, that's, yeah, yeah. Th this is uh, this is interesting that. because um, in your book and also in the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. book, one thing that was astonishing to me uh, was the revelation that 
this is really Dr. Fauci's dream. Uh, he, he, he inculcated, he developed this relationship with big pharma and that uh, he tried several times <clears throat> prior to COVID-19 to create a pandemic that would require essentially universal global vaccination. In fact, he was trying to do that with AIDS. That was part of what was pushing it. And then, of course, along came the flu virus, H1N1. He kept trying and trying and trying and didn't succeed until finally the COVID-19 pandemic came along. So Fauci was actually working for about 40 years uh, yes. to create a situation where there would be this universal vaccine, which would make uh, certain people, including himself, enormously wealthy and famous, uh, which seems to have been his main his main goal. Uh, that yeah, was a very astonishing revelation to me based upon the way Dr. Fauci had been portrayed in the early part of the pandemic. Yeah, and this explains two things here. Number one, um, b believe it or not, the way it works in the United States is uh, we as the taxpayers pay the federal government or they they extract the money from us under, you know, under gunpoint because if you don't pay, they, Robbery. Robbery. If, you don't, if you don't pay, they will come to your house. Sure. Um, yeah. And they will bring guns. Um, so so they extract the money and then they give it to Fauci and friends and then Fauci, um, you know, spreads it around the, the medical and the scientific community and they do a lot of research. And then the, um, the pharmaceutical companies find research they can use and then they create a product and then they pay NIH, which is the, the group that Fauci was part of, right. a royalty on, on their contribution to the product. Uh, believe it or not, individual people who are employees, they're already getting a massive paycheck from the government. They also are entitled to receive uh, uh, these uh, royalty streams. We don't know. I'll, I'll give you one example. And this this is in the AIDS uh, arena, too. It's called, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name, Truvada. Right. Have you heard of this scam? This I have. Is, a little oh, my God. To get your take on it. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's well, I first encountered it. Um, anybody that's ever been to New York City and, and been in the West Village and uh, used the Fourth uh, Street uh, subway station, that might be a lot of people, actually, if you've ever been, you know, there's a basketball court there. There's some of the best, um, uh, you know, pickup basketball you'll ever see on the planet there. And then you go a further, little further west and it's Christopher Street and, and the tr a traditional gay neighborhood. OK, to get from the subway platform to the street, you have to go through this long tunnel. I mean, it's. 50 yards. It might be longer. I don't know. It's super long and it's lined with ads. So one day pre COVID I'm walking down this, through this tunnel and visiting the city and every single ad is this thing called Truvada. And it's all young people in various configurations, man with man, woman with woman, black, Chinese, you know, just every, every possible flavor of humanity you can imagine. And I'm like, what is this Truvada thing? So I started to look into it. What they have done is they've taken some of these failed and dangerous uh, antiviral uh, uh, count compounds, put them in a drug and said, you know what? This will prevent you from getting AIDS. And if you're a young person you're at, and you're gay, even if you're a lesbian, which makes no sense at all, um, you are at risk of AIDS by, by just by definition. Therefore, to be part of your rite of passage, is you should get on Travada and stay on it the rest of your life. And this is now a way to express your identity. This is Travada. Pays $28 million a year. That, that number I was able to get. I don't know if how it's split up, if it's split up among individuals in addition to the agency. That pays $28 million a year. And interestingly enough, that's Gilead. 
And guess who made guess who made remdesivir? Gilead. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Guess who's made guess who's made a rack of so-called anti-AIDS drugs? Gilead. Gilead. So so I wonder why Tony Fauci suddenly got enamored of a failed Ebola drug and declared with no science at all, by the way, six weeks of absolute bullshit. Uh that this was not only a cure, but the only acceptable cure, you know? This, really, was Remdis this is remdesivir. Remdesivir, remdesivir. I got, we, we got the video. Uh, wow. And now here's another thing. If, if you remember back to the Ebola thing, it was all mysterious. It was over in Africa. Nobody quite knew what was going on. But it apparently made your organs explode, okay? Well, we know that one of the adverse reactions of remdesivir is a failure, as an organ failure, all right? Wow. So... They stopped using remdesivir in Africa to treat Ebola. Um, was remdesivir causing all those organ problems? You don't, I don't know. I mean, that's for someone to research, but this is a thread somebody could follow. So this is Tony Fauci's background. Oh, so the, so the second part of this, which is, so it really explains a lot, because a lot of people go, Ken, it must be true because everybody believes it. Every state, every country, every public health director, every I'm saying, listen, man, you cannot be a president of a country. You cannot be the governor of a state or what do they call them in their, their uh, provinces in Canada? Pre what do you, what we call them premiers. You can't be a premier of a province. You can't be a public health official at any level, federal, state or county or city. If you don't genuflect at the altar of AIDS, you have to buy that a little piece of genetic material that could be from anywhere causes this full-blown, horrific medical condition. You have to accept that. If you don't accept that, you are a dissident, you are reckless, and you may not be in the public health arena. This means, think about the, the, the implications of this. This means 100% of every single person in any public health or even political position. You can't run for dog catcher if you, if you question the AIDS uh, scam, right? Yeah. They were already lined up and all Fauci had to do was stick in the key and turn the ignition and the whole global engine went on and everybody's in lockstep. lockstep. And a surprising number of the leaders, uh, the initial leaders of the propaganda campaign were veterans of the HIV equals AIDS equals miserable death if you don't take HIV, H, uh, uh, AZT myth. Same individuals. Right. So anyway, that's a, that's it's it's all in. Uh, where's my book? It's yeah, Fauci's first fraud. Here it is, just so people yeah. can get a visual on yeah. it. You've said uh, you've said that that is the first book in a trilogy that you're writing. But let's talk about the second book, the new one. Okay. It's called What the Nurses Saw, and you're you're saying it's murder. When I read this book, I was reminded of uh, of a of a quotation from a George Orwell book called Animal Farm. Which goes something like all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Uh, but you know, this is uh, this is a very fascinating book because um, it revealed, I think, what some people might have suspected about what, what was really going on in hosp in hospitals. Uh, that and that really what we were seeing with you know nurses dancing around in chorus lines and things like that was really a, a, a cover up. Uh, but tell us what the nurses saw. What, what what's in your book? What what did, what did the nurses actually see? Gotcha. And and just um, to take a step back, what I'm always trying to do is write books about things that nobody else is talking about. Um, yeah. This, yeah. this showing how the, 
the COVID and the, and the AIDS scam aligned because it really was the same playbook, just a different disease. Right. Um, you know, that film I made in 20, two, two, 2020, and I was, I was a pretty significant contributor to the Kennedy book, not only in the volume of footnotes, but the direction. If you notice, that book has five chapters on AIDS. It didn't start out that right. way. And I, right. He does, he does attribute that to me and Celia Farber. So this is another, let's just show you this. You can see that it's a series because they look alike. Yeah. Um, this is another topic that's been completely missed. Um, we, we know that the masks were a fraud and everybody's, you know, no sane person is wearing a mask anymore. Uh, the schools and the, and the churches and the, the businesses and the cultural venues, they're all open again. Um, I think hopefully down here, at least I'm sure it's in Canada too. Most people realize the vaccines were utter nonsense. They're realizing it now uh, a little yeah. too late. Um, so all that, it seems like the coast is clear. We missed the big, you know, the elephant in the, in the room and going back to the, the bombing analogy, you know, when you're being shot at from all directions, when mortar rounds are falling all over the place, when bombs are being dropped on the sky, you may miss important things. Right. And what we missed is it looks like the hospitals were killing people, flat out, straight out, killing people. We really? did get, oh yeah, yeah. And we're, I'm going to go into the, you know, if I, depending on how much time I can spell the whole thing out from beginning to end. We did get a, um, kind of an early warning from a, a few, a handful, and not even, it doesn't even amount to a handful, but like a, ton, a sub handful of nurses. Uh, one of the ones um, uh, we, you know, we call her Nurse Erin because she has a long, <laughs> Slavic name? No, I, I just don't know the Slavic language. So when somebody has one of those names, I'm like, how do you pronounce that? But her name's Erin. Um, and uh, she was one of the very first to come out and say, we're just flat out killing people. In fact, she's one of the quotes in the front of the book. Uh, this is a knowledgeable nurse. Uh, she had been a, 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 a literally an infantry veteran in, in Iraq and then became a nurse. Uh, so this is not someone given to flights of fancy, uh, somebody that, you know, sees what she sees and calls it as she calls it. Um, so those, those, those interviews came out. Erin did quite a bit. She wrote a book that got published very quickly called Undercover Nurse about her particular experience in, in the New York City hospitals as a contractor. And then the story disappeared. And, and I was kind of waiting, okay, some, surely some, I don't think of myself as a journalist, by the way, or, or I mean, I, I am an author by definition because I've written books, but yeah. I mean, I didn't, I'm not wanting to be that I'm wanting to be something else right now, you know, but, but um, I thought, oh, surely somebody's going to, you know, write a long article or do a book on this, you know, this at least interesting phenomenon. Right. 2020 came, nothing, 21, nothing, 22, nothing. We're halfway through 23. And I'm like, is nobody going to talk about this? So I called Aaron and I said, hey, can you hook me up with some other nurses? And so we ended up, I believe, with eight nurses um, and a uh, respiratory therapist, which is a very important uh, position, which we could talk about. It takes four years of training and in, in, in important witness. Let's put it this way. And then I found this great researcher. She's part of a group in the state of Tennessee here in the United States who tracked every nickel and dime and how this thing was uh, uh, financially wired to benefit the hospitals. So um, that's how the book came to be. And uh, we put it out and what happened, so interesting how the world works. So two days after the book comes out, a friend of mine in, in Minnesota, uh, he was a student of mine originally in marketing way back in the late nineties. Uh, and then he started a resistance group in Minnesota called Masks Off Minnesota, great organization, true, authentic, 
local grassroots, no nonsense people who who get it done on the local level. We're by the way, which is where this has to happen. We cannot wait for a knight in shining armor on a white horse to come and save us. Right. It's never, ever, ever going to happen. It's the local groups that are going to make it happen. So he said, "Hey, you know, Ken, we're we're doing a meeting with with uh, families of victims of the hospitals," and I'm like, "Holy smokes!" You know, that's a that's a. I mean, I, I kind of in the abstract knew these people existed, but I was focused on the testimony of the nurses. And so I sat through this meeting, two hours worth, one family member after another, after another, after another, after another. And I sat through it and uh, when it was over, I got up and I threw up and I'm not exaggerating. And I have a pretty strong stomach. The stories are that grim and that gruesome. And that made me start to think, wow, how many people did they actually kill? And I kind of talked about it a little bit in the book, but I never really sat down and did the numbers. And um, here's how the numbers work out. Uh, In the United States, over a million were said to have died of AIDS. Now, we know how much fraud there is there, but we'll take their number. Yeah, Uh, I guess something like a million. um, I have the number here, something like uh, 1.15 million. Great. And that's, that's their number. And they say they died of AIDS. All right, we'll accept it. Um, we know all the chicanery there. You know, a guy comes in, I mean, literally the guy's shot to death or they're, or they're bleeding to death. They give him an, this AIDS, you know, excuse me, AIDS, yeah. COVID, you know, COVID, give, right. you know eh, whatever, whatever the, the virus. I have a t-shirt that says uh, virus of the month club that I like to wear to, to, to make people crazy. Um, <laughs> But but anyway, they will. They this literally happened. We're not even exaggerating. They swabbed a guy that was you know in you know in the process of dying of a gunshot wound. They found he was quote positive for COVID, and they declared it COVID death. And they did that way more than once. But that that's another issue. We'll accept their number of one point two million. The other number that's their own number is ninety two over ninety two percent of these people died in, in the United States died in a hospital or some other kind of uh, medical facility. Did you say ninety two percent? Ninety two percent. Wow. So this gives us, you know, I'm, I'm not really good at math, but let's say over 900,000 people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of people to die of a disease in a hospital where they're supposedly being, supposedly they're being cared for. So right. what we don't know, and, and but it is find outable. We don't know how many of the people who died were given remdesivir. We don't know how many courses of remdesivir they were given. Now, remdesivir comes in a bag. It's given intravenously. They hang it and it drips into you. And there was a financial incentive, not just to give somebody one bag of remdesivir, but to give them a course of remdesivir, multiple bags. And some of these patients were given multiple courses. Each time a course was run, the cash register rang for the hospital. They got they got bonused. Okay, so we don't know how many people who died of COVID were treated by remdesivir. We don't know. We don't know what percent, you know, how much, uh, when did they die? Did they die, you know, a few days later, a week later after the remdesivir started? We, we just don't know. But we could get that somehow if, 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 a, or if an organization with a lot of money and a lot of researchers could get that data. We also don't know how many people who were intubated, put on a ventilator, died of, of COVID. And um, we might start there. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of the it's if you think of this as a conveyor belt, this is literally the, the, the venting and the and the, um, the the intubation, the venting is the last stage of, of the, the conveyor belt. We, and we might start there. Yeah. And and I, and I have in my book a respiratory therapist. This is a four year academic training with all the practical training. This guy had 23 years of, of stellar record. So this is someone that knows his business. 
And one of the things he said to me is, look, we do not put people on ventilators unless it's the it's a last resort because it is an extreme thing. Now, if you're giving some, if you're going to cut somebody open in an operation, you're going to need to vent them. Okay. If somebody's had a catastrophic, uh, let's say car wreck, uh, and they're not able to breathe for themselves because the shock to their body is so strong, you may need to breathe for them with, with a, uh, with the venting process. Otherwise you don't do it right in the COVID in the world of COVID, they were venting everybody they could get their hands on. And, and Nurse Aaron, from, who worked in the New York hospital, said literally as soon as one person died on the vent, they'd clean the thing off and get another person on right away. Yeah. Okay. So, so people need to know what venting is. And I go into detail into it in, in the book. Okay. Venting is, they call the, 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 um, the, the slang for it in hospitals is the garden hose. They take something that is approximately like a garden hose and they put it down your throat right into your lungs, okay? Then they put a feeding tube that goes right into your stomach, okay? That's the first danger. People, ha people have died from that procedure alone and a lot of people died from that procedure during COVID, okay? Um, because this is, I mean, there's so many dimensions to this story. Uh, by magic, a law appeared that said, you know how we used to screen doctors from foreign countries who, who move to our country and want to practice medicine? I mean, if you, you could be the most esteemed German, you know, surgeon, right? Trained in Vienna or wherever, you know, have, if you sure. moved to the United States, you qualify to mop floors until you jump through 10,000 hoops. During COVID, they said, hey. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya's father. He was a rocket scientist. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, and uh, moved to California and uh, had to do uh, menial jobs. He eventually worked him. Uh, oh, he way. did. Oh, oh. Yeah. Well, but, he, but, he, but, he's, but you're exactly right. He came from India. Was a very top scientist, off the charts, no, brilliant, no, just no, like absolutely. Hey. Yeah, a absolutely no respect for the qualification of a physician who's. You know, but so what they did was they said, "Hey, look, that law is gone. If you can get on a plane." and get to America, we're gonna pay you. Now let's talk about the pay. The nurses, the contract nurses in the New York City hospitals were getting $10,000 a week. Yeah, you know, one of the stats in the book that was really shocking is this one. On a pure dollar and cents level, one of every $5 spent in the US is spent on the products of the medical services industry. As uh, and 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 is one of every three every three tax dollars, that that was mind blowing to hear that. Yeah, yeah, we and and especially when you look at the the statistics of the United States, we barely mm -hmm. rank as a developed country for our our out our health outcomes. There are there are third world countries. Yeah. Canada's worse. Can, our yeah. metrics are worse. Yeah, even worse. Oh my God. Yes, yes. Uh, we we are the we are number one in the world. In terms of uh, the 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 disparity between what we spend on healthcare and our results, okay, uh, we're the worst. We're the worst in the in the quote unquote developed world. Very very interesting, yeah. huh? And, yeah. and 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 who mismanaged uh, COVID most aggressively? United States and Canada, and of course the UK. Um, you know all the all the former colonies. Uh, you know New Zealand. Yeah. So you've got this. So, so going going back to the vent, venting situation, this is something you just don't do. And they were venting everybody like, oh, oh, and this is the point I want to make is they they have doctors coming in off, you know, 
are they doctors or not? I, I think if somebody does a deep dive, they're going to find some of the people walking around those ICUs weren't even doctors because really? they do. Well, I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to think of how the I'm just trying to think of how the world works. What yeah. due diligence can you do if a guy says I'm a doctor from Bangladesh? Yeah. What due diligence? Because because here's the thing: not only were they just taking doctors off the plane and just putting them to work and paying them extravagantly, um, they were putting pediatric they were putting uh, podiatrists and gynecologists in the ICU, guys that had never worked in an ICU before. They were putting nurses in the ICU that had never worked in an ICU before. They were putting nurses that had just graduated and had no practical experience at all. And I found out later they were putting nurses that hadn't even graduated yet in the ICUs in the United States. I don't know what they're doing in other countries, but that yeah. was going on in the United States. This is madness. You know, doctors are not interchangeable. You know, if somebody's trained in, you know, open heart surgery, that's what they do. If somebody's sure. a podiatrist, that's what they do. You don't go to a podiatrist and ask for open heart surgery. You don't put a podiatrist in an ICU unit. But that's what they were doing. So there were a lot of just plain vanilla incompetence that caused injury and death just in the intubation process, right? Right. But then once they intubate you, it's not it's, you don't take a pill and go unconscious and they do this. They put drips in. They've got not you know things that knock you out, things that uh, that are antiparalytic so you can't move, uh, and super analgesics like um, uh, the drug everybody's so worried about now, the the the, the, the replacement for heroin that's coming right. from China. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, pardon me. Uh, I want to say propanol, but that's not right. Um, Anyway, it's power. People would be shocked if they realized this drug. So you would have between five and fifteen different drips of all these drugs. You're completely unconscious. The very so that's not healthy, right? Um, you're being fed the equivalent of sugar water. That's not healthy. Uh, you're not moving. That's not healthy. Uh, you're not getting hydration. That's not healthy. You're supposed to be attended to and cleaned because you obviously can't get up and go to the bathroom. There were many patients, I'm not going to get into it in detail, who were not taken care of that way. Um, what else? What is, oh, the, and the other thing about, about venting uh, is that the way we normally breathe, the diaphragm goes down and it creates a, you know, like a little vacuum in a sense. And so the air just streams in, right? And then yeah, the right. diaphragm goes up and then um, with venting, you just shoot in the air down. Okay. Lungs are not made for that. The lungs are sturdy, but they're delicate, right? So there's always a danger, even if everything is being done by a super pro and they're being as careful as possible, there's always a danger you're going to injure the lungs, right? So now you have all these people being thrown on rest on, on ventilators who, and, and, the, the, and they're being, um, uh, you know, managed and, and supervised, by people that have no experience in doing this, uh, so that's the end. That's the end of the assembly line of, of death. You know, so if I if would you like to hear the full assembly line where it begins and every step that they yeah, I mean, what's shocking to me is is uh, or, or the question that, that that gets begged is 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 why? I mean, in the book you talk about um, sort of uh, a corrupted and perversion of science in academia and news media and with sort of the goal of weakening weakening and degrading what you describe as the last pillar that keeps the system even remotely functioning that's the integrity of the nursing profession is was that the goal here or what why was this happening wow you know it's it 
I'm just going to use this analogy, and it kind of goes back to the my that that uh, graphic of the bombing. Yeah. If I if I and, and this is the best I can answer right now, minus you know staff of I mean the, the, you know when when the when 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 nine eleven happened, you had you know I don't know how many millions of dollars they spent to investigate that. When the it, this needs millions of dollars to get all these answers, but but this I can tell you, and I think this is just logical common sense. If I see a plane fly across the sky, right? I know that I may not know anything about that plane, but I know this for sure. Somebody manufactured it, right? Like, right. Like somebody like had a plan and they built a factory and they hired a bunch of people and they got a bunch of material. And they all sat around, they assembled this thing. Sure. And then, and right. So at some point, at some level, certainly at the level, level of the federal government of the United States, uh, a group of people got together in a boardroom and they said, okay, what's the protocol going to be for COVID? And they literally concocted a protocol, which when, once I explain it in detail, that guarantee, almost guarantees the death of anybody that got onto that assembly line. So I don't know. I know the federal government was involved in our country. I don't know the individuals. I'd love to know. Oh, my God. I mean, remember that tri- that thing, the Wansi, tri- the Wansi Convention, where yes. the Nazis got together? Yeah. Yeah. I, the, yeah, we need something like that right now. We don't we don't want to find out about this, you know, five decades later. I want to know yeah. who was in the room and who did what. Now, the fact that it, it hit all the different nations, well, different nations did different things. Um, but there might have been one other level on top, might have been the World Health Organization that that you know gave the impetus. But the US and, and I don't know all the details about Canada, though we did interview two Canadian nurses. I'm a little more up on the on the US details. Uh, but clearly in the U.S., I can say conclusively, they used a ridiculously aggressive protocol that was, like I said, just pretty Once I describe it, you tell, you, you know, listeners can make up their own minds. But sure. my estimate is if I wanted to kill somebody, this is what I do to them. Wow. Um, so here's here's the conveyor belt. OK, so first of all, you're, you're being bombed every day by terror messages telling you that if you get a sniffle, you probably have COVID and there's no cure and you're going to die. Okay? And there's no treatment. right? So that doesn't help people's health. We have people that have respiratory distress. That's life. Like right? that's a lot of people every year, all the time. And so now you have somebody at home. They've got some respiratory distress. They've heard about this COVID thing. They're they're scared out of their mind. And maybe the distress is really serious, so serious they feel the need for medical intervention. So they go to the hospital. They're given a COVID test. Now, the COVID tests in the United States were distributed for free to the hospitals. And they were motivated to find a positive case in everybody who got tested. Because right. if they got a positive case, they would automatically get a five-figure. And in some states in the United States, because they did it on a state basis, it's explained in the book. And I, I have to be honest, the, I, I don't understand the formula they use, but the person that I interviewed did. And a state could get it, as, uh, in, depending on the state you were in, you, uh, you could get anywhere from 14 to nearly ha- over half a million dollars per COVID case. Sounds wow. insane. But yeah. we, you know, this lady, she, she's, then it's a team of people and I've looked at their numbers and they're right on everything else. And, but in any event, so as soon as somebody got declared a COVID case, now they're, they're ready for plucking. Um, the, the tests were free. So the, the hospitals were, were motivated to give people the test over 
and over and over and over again until it came positive, right? So the next thing they would do, once you had a COVID test and now, now you, you, you've come to the hospital because you have respiratory distress. So there's a thing called BiPAP. It's like a thing they put right over your face, okay? And, and supposedly it's to help you breathe. Here, here's the reality of this. It's not as extreme as venting somebody, but it's down the line. It's it's an it's not super extreme, but it's 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 aggressive. Right. And you only use it when you need to. It would be much better to put the cannula, you know, the thing in the person's nose, and you know, yeah, thing. It's attached. That gives them some oxygen. That'll that'll help. That that could solve the problem right there. But they went straight to the BiPAP. The BiPAP is like you're driving a car at sixty miles an hour, and you open the window. And you stick your, your head out the window. That's what it feels like. It's wow. not comfortable. Um, now, in a proper uh, setting, uh, therapeutic setting, where the intention is therapeutics, you would tell the patient, hey, look, you know, you're having trouble breathing. We have this device we think will help you, um, should help you. And, uh, but it's not comfortable. And it's kind of intense. And uh, we want you to know that that's what it is. And so if, you, if you're experiencing, you know, the, the sensation, it's intense, it's because it is intense. We'll be here. Uh, we'll be watching you. We'll be monitoring you. You know, if, if it gets too much for you, let us know. But we really think you need this. That's the way you would normally do this. During COVID, boom, on your face. No one said a word. No preparation, no comforting, no checking, no nothing. So if we, if we do a recap, the person has real respiratory distress. Trust, that's why they're in the hospital. They're terrified because of the COVID um, uh, hysteria that's been fomented. Now this thing's been slapped on them. Nobody's prepared them for how uncomfortable it's going to be. And they're, they start to freak out. And now they're written down as patient is agitated. Okay, now these, these words count for a lot in a, in a medical setting. Now the doctor says, you seem a little agitated. Uh, would you like something to help you relax? Right now, you're given your first in what could be in for what for many patients was a series of psychoactive drugs, sedatives, um, uh, largely. Right, and a lot of people said, "Yeah," because that's the kind of society we're in these days. You know, if it's a drug, it must be good. And the doctor says it must be good. So you're on your first sedative. You become a you have it. You you fall into a different legal category. The 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 moment you accept a, a a psychiatric drug intervention, normally you can just walk out of a hospital. Once you've said I'm upset and I I need a psychiatric because it's a, it's a psychiatric intervention, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Now you are a potential danger to yourself and others, uh -huh. which means the hospital can hold you. Right. This is a concept called medical kidnap. I mean, it's, it, it, the, the, the medical profession doesn't call it that. Activists call it that. But this is a way that people get kidnapped medically. All right. Now, you're on one of these sedatives. What does the sedative do? It relaxes your muscles. What is your diaphragm? It's, it's a complex organ, actually. It's quite in intricate and interesting, but, but it's largely a muscle. So you're also reducing the, the, um, the, the vitality, let's say, the, the functionality of your diaphragm. So it affects breathing. All of these sedatives have as an adverse reaction affects, it could affect breathing. So you've got this respiratory distress, which is real. You've been panicked by this un very uncomfortable uh, BiPAP put on your face, right? Now you've been given drugs that are reducing your breathing. Now the doctor comes along and says, we've got a thing we'd like you to try. Uh, it's called remdesivir. And Dr. Fauci says it's real good. A lot of people didn't know enough to say no, uh, especially in the early months. But it gets worse. A lot of people learned to say no. 
and they were lied to. They were told flat out, this is not remdesivir, it's um, Valkyl, I forget the, the other term for it. There's a brand, there's a, um, uh, either one's, one's the, the chemical name and one is the brand name. I forget which is right. which. And they said, oh, it's not remdesivir, it's brand X. Mm. So they were lying. Also have some cases about people who were passed out and given remdesivir while they were passed out without even knowing they were getting remdesivir. People that were under sedation, under heavy sedation with the, the venting who were given remdesivir. So that was the next step, the remdesivir. And, and they were paid. They got, they got compensated for uh, every course of remdesivir, not every bag of remdesivir, but every series of bags. And, and I think I mentioned this uh, earlier. They would put one patient on multiple courses. And every time a course was run, the cash register would ring again. So they were, they were financially motivated to put people on remdesivir. Now, remdesivir. Did, did, yeah, did Dr. Fauci not have an interest in remdesivir? Well, let, let, yeah, I mean, this thing has so many pieces. And, I, and I'll say this, if you're going to commit a crime, commit a really complicated crime with a lot of different pieces, man. Because, But let's go back, because I'm not going to forget. I'm going to remember every detail. And and remdesivir is made by Gilead. Ah, of course. Gilead is the marketer of a whole slew of AIDS drugs, including Truvada. And we know that, that NIH gets $28 million a year for Truvada. I don't know who, which, no. Fauci flat out told the U.S. Congress, I'm not telling you who in the NIH is getting individual uh, royalty payments from the drug companies. Now, why that was permitted, I don't know. I mean, I'm just mind boggled. But we know that about $28 million a year from Gilead goes to NIH, which includes Fauci potentially, um, on one drug alone. So remdesivir is a Gilead product and Gilead and Fauci are old friends. And the insanity of, remember, if we take this back, Remdesivir is a failed Ebola drug. They tried to treat by some crazy scientific theory, people with this problem in Africa with remdesivir and they stopped using it. And coincidentally, they were, there were all these reports of massive organ failure caused by Ebola. Um, well, what's one of the adverse effect, what's effects written on the label? Like, like this is not investigative journalism here. This is opening the freaking label and reading it. And it says could cause organ damage. So now we're on this conveyor belt and now they're giving the people remdesivir and it's slamming their organs hard. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And now the doctor says, you know what? You're not, you're not doing too well, Mr. Jones. I think we're going to save your life. Um, we, we need to vent you. Okay. Now they put them on the vent and the cash register rings again. And I learned this little detail. There were two, there were two payouts, one just to put somebody on a vent. And we've talked about how dangerous vents are. I hope it's clear to, to our listeners, you know, that, that you just don't, you, if you have to do it to, to save a life, you do it. You don't do it trivially. Yeah. You got one payment for putting them on. You got the next payment if you kept them on for 96 hours and one second. Okay. Think Now, the significance of this is when I talk to my informant for this book, 23 years of experience as a respiratory therapist, a manager of the venting process in hospitals, he said, Ken, you have to understand, if we put somebody on a vent, the very next day we're testing to see if we can take them off because we don't want them on a vent for one minute longer than they need to be because we know under the best of circumstances, under the best of care, this is a dangerous process, right? Yeah. So the federal, what did the federal government of the United States do? They incentivize the hospitals to keep people on, on vents for a minimum of 96 hours. So let's take this full course. 1.2 million people in the United States died of COVID. 
92% of those deaths plus occurred in a hospital or medical setting. You now know the conveyor belt that these people were put on. You know that the remdesivir, not a gentle drug on the system. Uh, we know venting a very dangerous process. How many people were killed by the supposed treatment for, for COVID? And, and I think it's a findable number, but it's, it's going to require a lot of study. Now, what's really interesting about this, and this takes us back to, this is an echo of the Nazi times. Now, there were a handful of doctors and one nurse put on trial after the Hitler era. Now, I calculated in another book I wrote um, called the Unraveling the COVID Con, it's, it, I wrote that really fast, so I'm really promoting these other two books because these are the. the but I, I said, you know, that we only, we know about Auschwitz, we know about that, but how many camps were there? Like, how many detention centers were there where people were held? Because there was a lot of slave labor going on throughout all of Europe, and it was, you know, you could have been walking down the streets of Paris in German-occupied uh, Paris, and they might have just grabbed yourself and thrown you on a truck, and you would find yourself assembling, you know, tank uh, rounds. Mm -hmm. uh, in a factory as a slave. And this, this, uh, this happened to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I asked myself, and I did the research, how many of these kind of camps, large and small, were there? 20,000. Incredible. Okay. Now, now, now let's do some math. Each one of these camps had some kind of medical facility, if some large, some, you know, bare bones. Who staffs the medical facility? Well, a doctor and probably a nurse at a minimum. So uh, my calculation back of the envelope is there were at least 40,000 doctors and nurses in Nazi Germany working in camps. Now, why is this significant? Um, they did treat the patients because they wanted them to work. And so somebody comes in and they're sick. If they found that that patient was, you know, this guy's not, we're not going to be able to put him back on the line. Lethal injection. Right. Okay? Not everybody was killed in a gas chamber. A lot of people were killed with lethal injections administered by who? Doctors and nurses. If you if it, go take this history a little deeper, one of the first things the Nazis did when they came to power was for some reason they needed to know who every Jewish person was. They just they wanted to know. They got the help of IBM. IBM came over, set up an office, worked hand in hand on that project. Uh, Watson, you know, one of the I think he was either the founder or the son of the founder, got the German Medal of Honor directly from Hitler. For, for the great work he did. And they created this database of Jewish people. A few years later, as soon as they had their database, what did they do? They passed the Nuremberg Laws. The Nuremberg Laws said, if you're Jewish, you can't work in a hospital or as a doctor or a nurse anymore. They pulled all the Jewish people out of the nurses in the hospitals, especially at the government level. And in a state like Germany, quite, quite socialized, they're all, you know, a lot of them are government employees. So suddenly the very best doctors and nurses in, in the country of Germany, couldn't practice. Who replaced them? The hacks who happened to be uh, uh, card-carrying uh, Nazi party members. The medical profession in Germany had the highest percentage of card-carrying Nazi party members, not just people that were you know compelled right. to do it, people that joined up, wore the band, you know, were into it. The highest percentage of any percent of any profession in probably even higher than the military, believe it or not. Yeah. So now we have the perfect storm. We have these, you know, sick people with sick beliefs now running the medical system, having absolute control over, you know, the people under, under their care. So 
Now, what's going on in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere? Our very best nurses, and that's that's you know, if you stuck, if you said, if you spoke up, if you stood up and spoke up, and said, I I am opposed to this, what you're doing, this doesn't make sense. And many of the nurses, many nurses did. Yes. Not a high percentage, but some some let's say some nurses did. This mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. And these are veteran nurses. I didn't interview right. you know, girls just out of school. I interviewed like people with 10, 20, in one case, 40 years of nursing experience and a PhD and a nursing educator. So these were all heavyweights. Mm-hmm. All these people were removed. First, they were you know demoted. Uh, then they were fired. Uh, they've been black. Many of them have been blackballed. The respiratory therapist I interviewed. This, again, 23 years experience, stellar record. drastic shortage of respiratory therapists of any level of qualification. And once he got fired from one hospital for standing up, he was blackballed in the entire state where he lived. He could not get a job as a respiratory therapist. So they demoted them. Well, at first they threatened them. Then they demoted them. Then they fired them. Then they blackballed them. Then they went after their licenses. A lot of the nurses in this book have had their licenses taken away for speaking out. And if that wasn't enough, and this is in the book too, they then set these organized armies of trolls to go after and torment uh, these people uh, using, using you know, hor- really horrible uh, tactics. So um, what are we doing? We're removing our very best uh, uh, most experienced with the highest level of integrity out of our medical systems. And we're replacing them with people that go along to get along. Uh, one nurse made, said this really interesting and scary comment. She's from Indiana where there's a lot of, uh, automobile manufacturing and manufacturing of all kinds. And so a lot of that work is going away. So what are they doing? Uh, it sort of makes sense on paper. They're taking people in their 40s, maybe early 50s that aren't quite ready for retirement, and they're retraining them as nurses. What's the problem with that? Well, there may not be a problem, but here's the thing. And this came through, this shines through the book. Most people that become nurses, at least up until this era, did it out of a, of a calling. Like they knew when they were a little girl, they wanted to be a nurse, maybe probably because of some family situation that they personally experienced. They wanted to be a nurse. They wanted to help people. This was, this is, they didn't, they didn't like say, well, I could be an accountant. I could be a lawyer. I could be an a software guy, or I could be a nurse. They wanted to be a nurse and they take an oath, you know, when they're nurses to protect the patients, to advocate for the patients. They are our, you know, in a practical sense, if the doctor makes a mistake, which happens, we're all human. It's the nurse that catches it. Um, Mm -hmm. but in any event, they're taking all these folks that have spent their lifetime, you know, assembling things on an assembly line. God bless them. It's an important kind of work. And they're saying, Hey, now you can work with human beings and they don't, they didn't have, maybe they don't have a calling the way a, a, a person that started in nursing has. I'm not saying that all of them don't, but, but it's, it's not likely that hundred percent of people that spent 10, 10 or 20 years on an assembly line are now going to be. Uh, uh, warm and compassionate and, and and vigorous advocates for patients. They don't have they don't have that orientation, right. but they do have an orientation to is following procedures and doing as they're told. Yeah. So we are replacing bit by bit the the old, I'm going to call them the old school nurses who have a calling. And one 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 nurse talked beautifully about it. She said our nursing professor like looked us each individually in the eye and said, "It's your job." to be the advocate. You're the, you're the last line of defense for your, for your patients. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to stand up to the doctors. You have to stand up to the hospitals if if they're doing wrong. And this is in their, this is in their actual professional Mm -hmm. oath. And and the nurses who are in my book feel this, 
They're great nurses uh, on a technical level. They're compassionate human beings, and they take that oath seriously. We are replacing those kinds of people with people that just that may not have that background and that orientation. Yeah. This is a recipe for freaking disaster. Yeah. It actually, uh, it, it, I found, uh, I went back and looked at, uh, I found a quotation from your former governor, Andrew oh. Cuomo, who had to resign because, as you know, so many people died on his watch. And he had this to say, and it sort of ties into what you were just saying. He said, as a society, beyond just this immediate situation, we should start looking forward to understand how this experience is going to change us or how it should change us because this is going to be transformative. It is going to be transformative on a personal basis, on a social basis, on a systems basis. We're never going to be the same again. We're not going to forget what happened here. He says the fear that we have, the anxiety that we have, that's not going to go away. When do we get back to normal? I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we get to a new normal, right? He says, like we're seeing in so many facets of society right now. So we will be at a different place. And finally, he says, our challenge is to make sure that transformation and that change is positive and not negative. Let's make sure we're, t- we're taking the positive lesson and not the negative lesson. So oh my God. perhaps this was just sort of to frame it. Maybe that's the 40,000 foot view. But at the ground level, in terms of what the nurses saw, this is why they're being moved out. It's part of it. What's, what's so funny about, about Cuomo, you know, this is a political science graduate, um, lawyer, no offense to lawyers, but, you know, that's a certain kind of training. It's not a science training. Yeah. It's not a medical yeah. training. right? Yeah. And here he is spouting all these things. What's really interesting is the head of public health for New York State, who was probably whispering all this into his ears, is, was a physician pediatric um, cardio- cardiologist and an, anesthesi- an anesthesiologist as well, right? Um, but didn't practice medicine, spent 80% of his time in, in very political positions. For instance, a member of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, right? And, and so he spent all his time doing medical policy at an international global level and suddenly he's the guy whispering into the ear of this knucklehead thug, uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, yeah, that, and that's probably, a, that is probably the uh, picture of how it worked. You had these governors who didn't know anything, you know, they just showboat. I mean, he would wear his flak jacket or his, yes. his flight jacket. And I mean, it was so absurd. And, and that Holding was multiple. Court, yeah. yeah, I'm sure they happened in Canada too. In our, right. in our local county, same thing. Uh, this guy felt the need and was, I just have to show, shout this out. Pat Ryan, now in the, now congressman in the United States was a county executive of Ulster County in here in New York state. His background, intelligence officer during the Iraq war, uh, divide, devising computer systems to track the population. Uh, his, his, his demo that he's a real businessman taking that very software and selling it to police departments in the United States. Uh, and next thing you know, he's county executive and he's leading the you must get vaccinated or else uh, crusade. And now he's a congressman. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's interesting. Well, we could we could certainly go on and on and on. And uh, I'm sure you will go on and write the third book. But um, by way of wrapping up, this has been just in a really illuminating conversation, uh, as I knew it would be. I want to remind people about the two books that are being added to our reading list today that were written by our guest, Ken McCarthy. The first is Fauci's First Fraud, The Foundation of Medical Totalitarianism in America. He's talked about that today. 
He calls it medical system corruption. This book really is uh, a must read and it was was quoted substantially. And there, there also is a documentary film of the same name that is very worthwhile watching. And then, of course, the most recent book, the one that Ken is uh, recently published and is promoting now, which is called What the Nurses Saw. And uh, this is an investigation into systemic medical murders that took place in hospitals during the COVID panic and the nurses who fought back. Uh, so uh, I want to thank our guest, Ken, for being with us today. Uh, I've read both of these books. I highly recommend them. And uh, I hope that people will, will buy them uh, because it's very important for people to understand um, what has what happened to us, what was done to us during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that this is still happening. This is not over. Uh, and so, uh, Ken, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, honestly, looking forward to reading your, reading the third book in the trilogy. Thank you so much. And, and you know, if people go to whatthenursessaw.com, we have a lot of follow-up material and action material. So it's not just, you know, despair. It's, okay, now here's what we're going to do. Right, right. Fantastic. That's what we need. People uh, are so much more empowered when they can take action. Uh, it's one thing to know what's wrong and to identify the problem, but to be able to to be given a prescription of something that a person can do, that that oftentimes makes makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? Yep. And thanks. Thank you so much for the show and for having me on. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. 